This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. And uh, this time it's Coffee with Chris. Uh, Chris and Lee talking about, what are we talking about this week, Chris? We're talking, talking about the good old Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer, 1662 and all that. Uh, it is, as, um, as one recent scholar, Brian Cummings, puts it, a book to live, love and die to. Uh, partly because it's got the hatch match dispatch uh, services in it of baptisms, weddings, funerals, but lots of other things too. Uh, what's in the Book of Common Prayer, I hear you ask? What is in it, Chris? All sorts of good stuff. I've, I look after four parishes in my little corner of rural Herefordshire and for two of those parishes they are pretty much prayer book parishes one has only prayer book services I've even done a prayer book baptism there and uh, the other one is sort of three quarters prayer book in it so I think the first thing I want to say on what is it is that it's still going that's that's one point so it's not as if it's simply a piece of history it's not as if it's something which is of interest just to historians but it's actually still shaping the spirituality of the people who use it. So what is it? It's a collection of services which are authorised for use in the Church of England and it also contains our doctrine. It's our kind of basis of faith, really. And in my parishes, we use it every now and again for weddings. Um, We use it for a matins, a morning prayer service. We use it for an evensong, which is an evening prayer service. And we use it for communion as well. So it's a... It's a liturgy, but it, written with, I think, written with a specific aiming mind, which is to shape your theology through the prayers that you're using again and again and again so that they become part of you. So it is formative as well mm. as simply just liturgy. We believe I what we that. pray. Formative, I like that. And what, what I find so striking about it is that the Book of Common Prayer is, is a very Bible-centred book. So uh, Jim Packer said that the Anglicanism of the 1662 prayer book with its hundred verses a day lectionary, its monthly passage through the Psalter, its Bible crammed daily services and its high valuation of expository preaching is a Bible reading, Bible loving, Bible believing faith. And he wrote an article, uh, Jim Packer, in Churchman, uh, as was Uh, back in 2000, where he said, it is plain that our reformers meant the Anglican church to be the greatest Bible reading church in Christendom, and Anglican Christians should become the most knowledgeable Bible students to be found anywhere. And that's true. So if you pick up the Book of Common Prayer, it's just saturated in Scripture constantly. So right from the very beginning, when uh, Cranmer says in his introduction that, that people by daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in the church, might continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. That's wonderful. What a great thing. This is a book which will set fire to your love for true religion, uh, for the Lord Jesus and his word. And so it's a, it's a thoroughly biblical thing to be 
reading using the Book of Common Prayer. It's not going to take you away from the Bible. It's going to send you towards it every single day if you use it every day and every week if you're using it weekly. So I love that about the, the BCP. Tell us a bit more about the doctrinal angle, though, that you were talking about. So it does say in the, um, the canons of the Church of England uh, that our doctrine can particularly be found in the 39 Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer, and the ordinal, oh God, the ordinal, the ordination services, which are in my copy of the Book of Common Prayer, and the 39 Articles themselves are at the back of the, the Book of Common Prayer. What about the doctrine that you find in the, the services themselves, the liturgies for the service. What, what do you think of that? Why is that interesting? I think there's, there's two things with that. I mean, one is is just sort of anecdotal. So I have, as I say, four parishes, two of whom are predominantly prayer book in their uh, liturgy, and therefore prayer book in their in their sort of thinking. And the other two parishes, I've got uh, switched over to uh, the ASB and then common worship, and we use booklets because common worship really is sort of like a little library of texts in which you have to pinch this and then print off your own service book. And it is noticeable that if you compare the two parishes, the parishes which have been prayer book tend to be more evangelical in their belief even if they're not using the term evangelical, because it's what they've heard week in, week out, and therefore that you you sort of assume it's true. I mean, that's the danger of liturgy, of course, that you can have a liturgy coming up for something which is incorrect, but the, because it's liturgy, people assume it's right. Uh, so mm. there's, you know, liturgy <laughs> is important. We have to be careful about liturgy. Now, I find it interesting, for instance, I can remember there was a great uh, kafafu, maybe even a hoo-ha or a brouhaha <laughs> over in Christ alone, you may remember, because it has the line about the wrath of God being satisfied. And there was a lot of sort of spluttering into port as people read that and thought, well, we can't have Jesus and, and the idea of God having wrath and satisfaction. But if you look at the communion prayer, the Book of Common Prayer, it talks about satisfaction uh, as part of what Christ earned for us upon the cross. So it speaks just in the liturgy of what did Christ achieve on the cross? Uh, how might we access what Christ achieved for us on the cross? The need for us to acknowledge our fallen nature and seek forgiveness of God. All of that is in the liturgy for the communion service. And also with it, uh, and I'm a great believer in this, as you know, but there's a sense of heft or seriousness or weightiness. We are mm. coming before Almighty God. This is not a flippant thing to do. And there yeah. is something about the weight of the language and, you know, miserable sinners, all this sort of stuff. But it kind of makes that point. I don't want to just give the impression I'm, I like the Book of Common Prayer because it's poetic and it's Chaucer-esque <laughs> or Shakespeare-esque. And there are people for whom they find beauty in the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm not decrying that. I think it is there. But for me, the most important part is the doctrine that's been wrapped up in that language in quite a memorable yeah. way. That part of the, the liturgy for the Lord's Supper is actually really important in the context of the Reformation when this, mm. these prayers were written. Um, and it does teach something very doctrinal. So in the context where you're talking about the Roman Catholic doctrine of the mass, 
um, of the re-representation of Christ's sacrifice, that there's a propitiatory sacrifice going on in the mass where a priest is sacrificing Christ in an unbloody way to the Father on our behalf. Um, you then read the Book of Common Prayers service and the liturgy for communion, and the emphases are unmissable. So let me just read it. Um, we're supposed to pray, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, which of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there on the cross, not here on the table, there on the cross, by his one oblation of himself once offered, a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that, his precious death, until his coming again. I mean, how, how, how much more could he bang home this point that there is no sense that what's happening at the table is a sacrifice? All the language of sacrifice in that service is kept till after we've eaten and drunk the, the bread and the wine. Only then do we pray that God would accept, uh, to use the language of Hebrews 13, our sacrifice of praise of thanksgiving after the, the communion has been e e eaten and drunk. After we fed on Christ in our hearts by faith, we offer and present to God, not the bread and not the wine, but we offer ourselves, the language of Romans 12, as a holy and lively or living sacrifice. So the way that the services are um, phrased and the, the, the placement of different prayers and where certain language is not used, so the language of sacrifice is kept to what Christ did on the cross. And then after we've eaten and drunk, we talk about us sacrificing ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. So all that language is very carefully put together to teach you that there's no propitiatory sacrifice going on at the altar because there is no altar. It's a table on which a meal is being celebrated. So I think that kind of doctrinal clarity is, is fantastic. I mean, so carefully, thoughtfully done. What about, you said at the beginning about the sort of repetitiousness of doing these prayers every week, that sort of formative nature of the liturgy. Tell us a bit more about that. I tell you, again, it's an anecdote, but where it particularly strikes home with me is I will be in a nursing home or uh, by a bedside um, and these are people who have dementia of various types, but for whatever reason to communicate is not particularly straightforward or mm. I've had the instance you know, where you've got people who are just either comatose or they're, they're barely sort of coming to. If I use with them at that stage prayers which are in the prayer book i get a response i can remember mm -hmm. praying with somebody um christian lady um she was you know out for the count really um but when i use one of the old prayer book prayers with her because i thought she would know them she you no know, she squeezed my hand as i was holding because she recognized mm. it and yeah. i think there is that sense where the repetition drums it into you. I mean, this is why we repeat the times tables at school. Well, used to, at least back in my day. And, you know, it's, it sticks within you. And also when you're thinking about what is uh, the cross, what does it achieve, these phrases 
come to mind. And I've found often, I mean, I pinch this actually from one of the old archdeacons here who um, was a missionary for Crossway before he became archdeacon of Hereford. And he would sometimes stand up in the pulpit and hold a copy of the Book of Common Prayer and saying, what if all of this was true? He tried <laughs> to make the point to the congregation that, you know, this is this is good stuff. And I find it a gift when I'm preaching at prayer book churches to, to be able to say, and as we will be shortly saying, or as you'll remember we've said, or Ooh. to draw on the collects, which are you know, the weekly prayers, which are a gift. There's so much little sort of pithy little bits of doctrine in them. And I think it's just, it gets into people's, it forms the kind of channels of thinking that they go through, which means that when they hear something which isn't particularly right, it, it kind of, a little alarm bell goes off, it clashes. You think, well, hang on, that's not what I'm used to saying. That sounds a bit different. Yes. Yes. That's the kind of formative, and I'm just struck by the people that I know who I would say have been formed in their spirituality by the prayer book, how solid they are, but without owning any party label in the church. This is mm. rural Herefordshire. We don't do that kind of thing here. But nonetheless, they're, they're solid and, and biblical in their thinking, uh, regardless of whoever may have been stood up preaching in the pulpit uh, as that particular incumbent for that particular ministry. Yes, because the liturgy itself is preaching the gospel to us. I'm struck whenever I do a BCP communion service that that's the case. The basic structure of the communion service has a sort of threefold repetition of the gospel in it. So at the beginning, you acknowledge uh, your sin, you hear the grace of the gospel and respond to it in faith. First, you pray the collect for purity and we pray for mercy because we've broken God's law. And then we hear the New Testament readings and we say, I believe when we pray the creed, uh, say the creed out loud. You hear the sermon, you give to the collection and you pray in faith. And that's the sort of first time round mm. teaching you the gospel structure. The second time round in the same service, you pray the confession. We hear the absolution and the words of comfort. Our Saviour Christ says to all who truly turn to him, we hear about his forgiveness. Um, and finally, we respond in thanksgiving and praise to the, the Lord Most High. And the service then repeats that whole cycle um, a third time as well. So we confess our unworthiness to come to the Lord's table, trusting in our own righteousness. We come trusting in his manifold mercies instead. Uh, that's the prayer of humble access. Then the grace of God in sending Jesus to die as a sufficient sacrifice in our place is proclaimed in that prayer of consecration that I just read out. And after that, we respond by feeding on Christ in our hearts by faith as we take and eat the bread and the wine and then pray and sing our thanksgiving. So we get guilt, grace and gratitude three times inculcated in those who use this service by a sort of deceptively straightforward reiteration of the gospel and celebrating the work of Christ on the cross. And that's just brilliant. So, it, you know, if somebody then gets up and preaches something that's entirely at odds with that, it's really obvious because you've I think got this that is, whole cycle. Yeah. I think this is this is the point. I mean, I, I hear sometimes people referring to uh, parishes like mine, which you no know, haven't got a. They're not. They don't have the great benefit of being a church society trust patronage, so they haven't had a sort of a sustained evangelical ministry in them. Um, 
And people will then sometimes say of those parishes, oh, the gospel has never been heard or never been preached in those parishes. Uh, well, I yes. kind of disagree with that because I think if you're, to be honest, if you're if you're using the prayer book and you're singing the hymns of Wesley, you've got a pretty good basis, which is what a lot of these churches do. Um, and then, I mean, I've introduced, <laughs> I shall make you think I'm a Presbyterian, but I mean, I've also introduced in one of my parishes that one of the hymn before the gospel reading is always a metrical psalm because there's plenty of them in our hymn book. So mm. I kind of think if you can get the backbone solid of the service, then it does matter less who is preaching because their preaching will, if it isn't in line with what's in the rest of the service, it will it will stand out. It will look odd. And yes. I'm quite... I, I wonder, I wonder, if whether as evangelicals in the Church of England, we've kind of let that go because it's not popular the Prophet of Common Prayer amongst evangelicals, broadly speaking, that we I I find a lot of people that I'm talking to who, oh, I wouldn't go to a prayer book church or I wouldn't fancy that. And so the prayer book constituency, it then becomes more about choral even song, putting on uh, the, the liturgy. And we kind of I feel we've almost given up one of our crown jewels where yes. we should be saying this is this not only is the Book of Common Prayer ours, but it defines us. I mean, the yes. Evangelical Party in the Church of England, frankly, doctrinally, is the prayer book party. You know, that we should be the same, really. <laughs> and yet liturgy itself, not just the BCP, uh, but liturgy itself seems to be out of favour for various reasons. I think in the UK... we're all trying to be Baptistly, that's well, why. Well, maybe. Well, I think that's partly it. Um, in, in the last few generations, many church leaders in so-called influential churches became Christians despite their exposure to liturgical worship in their private school chapels or whatever, rather than because of that. And so over many years, they've often sought to escape what they consider to be the less edifying liturgical constraints in favour of a meeting structure that is more reminiscent of a Christian summer camp, since that is what they often first thought of as properly Christian, where they first experienced conversion and authentic discipleship. And so liturgy may be considered spiritually distasteful um, by such people and by those coming from a non-conformist tradition because of, a, because of that and because of a lingering communal memory about how the prayer book was heavy-handedly imposed in 1662 yes. in the Act of Uniformity. And that was a really bad idea. We shouldn't have legal imposition of these things. But it, it's lingered and, and therefore has taken away from that whole liturgical way of doing things, which means, in practice, that very few evangelical churches um, consistently say the Lord's Prayer every week mm. and the Ten Commandments and the Creed. Some don't even have a confession every week in, a, in their services. But I think we do lose something, don't we, if we don't say the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments and the Creed on a regular basis. We're bringing people up, a whole generation of people are being discipled without reference to those basic Christian texts that anybody in 1662 would have known of by heart and thought of as obvious. I, th I think that's entirely true. And, and it's interesting in that context that you will get... Um, Oh, Presbyterians who who were then put together one was released recently wasn't it a, a kind of a prayer book um, I seem to remember was published yes that's right Be Thou My Vision by that Jonathan Gibson yeah that's which it. is terrific 
which is good. But the, you sort of think, well, we, we've we've got one of them already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I do think there is something about the church. I mean, it's I was I was a Baptist, um, although I do remember once because um, I thought it would be funny uh, leading the morning worship at the college and making them all say BCP pat- Matins because I thought that would be ironic, which we did. But I, I think uh, even as a Baptist, I was conscious in our training that we had that those discussions that just because we are churches which have this is now speaking as a Baptist who have not been liturgical actually there is value in liturgy and so you would find that there were books of Baptist liturgy that were put out to try and fix that gap if I can put it in those terms which which few Baptist churches use to be honest but also that you then get uh, things like the Northumberland community who are putting out their daily prayer books because there was clearly a sense of a need for for all of this kind of Mm. stuff and to be quite honest and I've been somebody who for years with with my family would go to Soul Survivor so which is not the most liturgical um, gathering in the world but nonetheless it was highly liturgical because they followed the same pattern throughout each week of trying to bring people up to a, a time of decision that the worship yes it w- wasn't sort of you didn't we weren't all given orders of service but it was clear they all knew where they were going there was a certain mood you drop uh, the mood of the music at this point uh, you'd be playing uh, worship songs of a certain type at this point it was liturgically put together so it, it is important and i think we do our congregations a disservice if we don't give something like that and also we do ourselves a disservice if we don't engage with something like that as well because mm. i think it's a tool in the bag which i i don't know i keep looking back to that thing in acts 2 um where it talks about that they met together for the prayers there's a definite article there in and there's that sense of mm. i'm sure the early church would have shocked many of our non-liturgical type churches by their liturgicalness, if that is a word. Yes, yes. Um, interesting, historians have, have said that it was the liturgy more than theological sermons that kept alive in Christian consciousness the whole Trinitarian structure mm. of the Christian yeah. faith at times when Unitarianism had really infected um, many clergy uh, and the church. Um, that may be true in the early church, but certainly true in the 17th and early 18th centuries, that if you're saying the Anglican liturgy every week, um, you can't escape the Trinity. <laughs> it's just there in every single no. service. You baptise people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the end of every evening prayer service, you say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ um, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And many of the collects contain Trinitarian formulas. Mm. After all the Psalms, we, we say the Gloria Patri. Um, glory be uh, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's just there, and that keeps mm. that sort of Trinitarian structure and teaching in people's minds. Church Society supports local churches, ministers, and Christians around the country through our publications ministry, books, a quarterly magazine, a theological journal, this podcast, and a whole host of teaching resources in video, audio, and print format. Our growing team of regional directors are available to support and encourage ministers and local groups. We organise a number of regular annual conferences, regional conferences, and online webinars.
were involved in partnership with many other evangelical organisations in this country and around the world. We have regular prayer meetings and a prayer diary for members. In all of this, we're seeking to build a fellowship of believers who want to see the kingdom grow and the Church of England be reformed for the glory of God and the good of England. We'd love to have you join us. You can join us as a member or an associate and you'll find all the information about how to do that on our new website at churchsociety.org. Chris, we don't want to come across as romantic antiquarians and just bang on about, you know, the Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, If we've got these, then we'll be fine. And that's the way forward. And and maybe we'll put them behind a glass case or something like that. We've got to use these things um, and update them. Um, We don't have to use 17th century ways of speaking, do we? I mean, um, dost thou constantly useth such forms of speech in thy parish? Aye, verily. I think, (laughs) no, I mean, there is, yeah, it does take a bit of getting used to. I have to say, I, I I do think that if the person leading the service understands what's being said and you read it in that way, it is clearer perhaps than we give credit for. Um, but no, there are up to... Well, there's two things that sprung into my mind at the same time. The first is that there are, apart from the services, there's other bits of the prayer book which are useful. When um, when we went into a time of, of plague with uh, the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic initially, I seem to remember yeah. that the, the Church of England put out a collect or a prayer, and I'm going to... can't remember exactly what it was, but it was kind of praying for doctors and, and, and that kind of thing. It was I, It came across to me as... as fine, I've got no objection for praying any of that, but it wasn't particularly doctrinally rich. So what I used in my churches was the BCP collect at the time of plague and pestilence, which yes. talked about the fact that, you know, that plague is, is times of judgment from God. We pray that it will be lifted from us and that we would repent. And so I found that a, a useful thing to do. But going back to the question actually about um, the liturgy, there are, if you uh, happen to be Anglican, there are in common worship updated versions of the Book of Common Prayer. So I think I'm right in saying that Order 2 is basically the prayer book and you can do that in contemporary language or in more traditional language that people will be familiar with. The Order 2 communion service. Yeah, That's it, yes. So there are versions of the Book of Common Prayer which have been updated for English usage. Uh, some outfits, somewhere or other, also put out an English prayer book. I can't remember who that was, Lee. Can you? I think that might have been Church Society. Um, Possibly. In the 1990s, as part of the liturgical revision uh, that was going on before Common Worship, Church Society produced... Um, an English prayer book, which has some updated Book of Common Prayer type services. It was published by Oxford University Press. um, And all the material for that can still be read for free on the Church Society website. Mm. We should probably try and produce some sort of prayer book for global Anglicans um, uh, in an updated form, because that's over 25 years ago now, I think. Uh, A book of global prayer. prayer. Yeah, something like that would be a great idea. So we need to keep doing these things in every generation as we proclaim afresh in each generation the unchanging gospel. We ought to update our liturgies, make sure that they, uh, you know, we continue to reform them by the word if we find things in them that might not be accurate now or which people twist to their own destruction. Um, I think some of the language in the, the Book of Common Prayer has been used 
by enemies of the gospel within the church to teach things which the prayer book doesn't and didn't mean by that language. So I think sometimes the language, we should update it and perhaps change it in certain ways to guard against those misuses of 17th century language. And that, I think, is perfectly reasonable. The, the canons of the church do actually give us freedom to do that as ministers in canon uh, B5, isn't it, I think, uh, which tells us as long as our updating of the language is reverent and seemly and not indicative of a departure from Anglican doctrine in some essential matter, that we can change the language and update it in that way. Um, I think it's true. Many people would update it in a way that wasn't reverent or seemly (laughs) and that did indicate a departure from Anglican doctrine. Indeed. Um, that's the problem. And there are good elements that we can use. So I, I have a couple of common worship parishes, and but I, I sort of reviewed the list year when I came in, and I, there's a lot more prayer book elements in that service now, but it is the, the modern kind of service. Uh, I, I agree that we need, mustn't get too hung up on the language, but the kind of the theology that is there or the patterns that are there are, are very much useful things. I think as well I've come across... A lot of people, again in my patch, who are used to the Book of Common Prayer, using it for personal devotions. I don't think we would want to give the impression that this is only for corporate worship, but uh, yes. you know, you can use it by yourself. And how would you do that? So somebody once asked me, "I'd like to use the Book of Common Prayer for my personal devotions. What should I do?" And I suggested they look um, near the beginning. There are there are um, readings and collects for every Sunday that were to be used in Book of Common Prayer services. And so, you know, I've just turned to one randomly, you know, here's the fourth Sunday after Easter. There's a, a collect um, at the beginning, which is which takes you 25, 30 seconds to pray. So it's an opening collect. And then it has an epistle reading from James and a gospel from the Gospel of John. And it's just, it's a page and a half in my little that, prayer book here. Is that the reading from James that talks about there being a superfluity of naughtiness? Um one of my favourite uh, Yes, it readings. is. That's it exactly is. the one. <laughs> Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now, I suppose that ancient language uh, might make you giggle, uh, but there's no reason why you couldn't um, use the collect. And you can see what the reading is supposed to be. Read it in your modern version of the Bible, if you prefer. But that would be one way to use uh, to use the, the common prayer, book of common prayer, for daily devotions. It gives you a prayer and a couple of short readings. Take you no more than 10 minutes um, to have your quiet time beginning in that sort of way. What a thoroughly Anglican, but thoroughly biblical way to have your daily time with the Lord. Some of these collects are terrific as well. They, they um, have great theology, a very clear structure. You know, they address God, um, something about God, something about what he's done for us, a reason why we should be thankful and they're, they're often Trinitarian explicitly in their structure, and they're well-written. There's some really nice ways of putting things uh, in those collects, which I think, um, you know, is a lot better than we really, really, really do just want to thank you, Father, for dying on the cross uh, for us. And that sort of um, slightly dodgy theology that's extemporary uh, and not very well thought through. So there's a lot to be said for using collects in that sort of way, I think. I think it has to be said that a lot of our prayers have plenty of vain repetitions in them, regardless of the fact that we're making them up as we go along. I certainly yes, fall into true. that trap. Do you think we ought to um, conclude this uh, this Coffee with Chris 
podcast uh, by by Prey, one of those collects. I've got one open, which is a well-known collect, but um, not nicely phrased, a good one for us to end with. Sounds like a plan. Off you go. All right, this is the second Sunday in Advent, the collect for that day. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm.